0: One of the most amazing and also tragic stories in the entire Torah, and certainly in Parshas Barashas, is the story of the Eitz Hadas and the sin of Adam and Chava, and their punishment and their banishment from Gan Eden, their banishment from Paradise. One of the most perplexing and fascinating parts of this incredible story is the role of the Nachash, the snake, or the serpent, which is described in this story in numerous places as having very human-like attributes. For example, the... The story opens with the snake being described as the most cunning and wise and sophisticated of all the creatures. And this is not something that we would typically expect of a a description of a snake, and really a description of almost any creature, let alone uh, a snake. It certainly sounds like we're describing a very high-functioning, sophisticated creature, not the type of snake that we uh, typically uh, are familiar with. But, of course, the bigger issue is that right after that, the Torah twice describes the snake as actually talking Chava, a talking snake. The Torah tells us that the snake said, The snake says, to Chava, did God really tell you you can't eat from any of the fruit? And of course this is very cunning because it induces Chava to respond that no, 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 there's just one particular tree that we can't eat from. And when Chava finally finishes saying what she has to say, we read again in Posig Dala, the snake once again speaks in response to Chava this time, don't worry, you will not die. So twice we see the Torah saying us that the snake spoke to Chava, and of course this is quite shocking. What does this mean? A talking snake. And last but not least, when the story ends and the snake is punished and told it will now have to slither on its stomach and roll around in the ground in the dirt for the rest of history, it certainly implies if that's the punishment that heretofore, before the punishment, that the snake was standing upright, that it was erect. Really, a talking snake, a, a standing snake, a walking snake. What is going on? And ultimately, the real question that we're asking is, how literally are these psukim supposed to be taken? Does the Torah intend to convey something quite literally that happened? Or is it perhaps just a metaphor for something else? So this is, in fact, a major machlokas in the Mepharshim. On one extreme, we have the Ibn Ezra, who says we have to take these psukim quite literally. The snake actually spoke to Chava. Chava somehow understood the language of snakes, whatever that means. And not only did the snake talk, but as the end of the story implies... Before this, the snake was komazukufa Kufa. The komo, the snake was erect, the snake would walk, and not only did the snake walk and talk, but as the entire story implies, the snake was a bar Das. The snake was very smart, just like human beings were given Das by Hashem. The snake was given Das by Hashem, and it was very tricking and very cunning and very sophisticated. And therefore, says the Ebenezrah. One should not be surprised that the snake was punished, because we see from all of this that the snake was uh, almost, if not uh, identically, but almost as uh, intelligent and sentient as Ottoman uh, Chava were, and therefore, just like any other creature that had that ability and that knowledge and that wisdom, and that sophistication, you know, you're responsible for your decisions, and therefore you can get punished when you make mistakes and you transgress of Eros. So too, says Ibn Ezra, that's why the snake was punished, because it had the ability to do the right thing, but it chose to do the wrong thing, and it used these God-given gifts like speech, uh, the ability to walk, and the ability to think, and did this terrible avera, therefore the snake was deserving of punishment. That's the Ebenezer's extreme approach. The Radak and the Chizkuni don't go as far as the Ebenezra, in the sense that they don't think that this was a natural uh, attribute and ability of a snake to walk and talk uh, at this point in history. They acknowledge that, even from the outset, the natural abilities of the snake did not allow a snake to speak. Not at all. But rather, they agree, though, with Ebenezra, that in this story, in the episode with Chava, the snake did speak because they say it was a miracle. Hashem made a one-time miracle, and the snake was able to speak to Chava during this episode. After all, they point out we have other, uh, you know, precedents for this in the Torah as well. When Hashem made Bilam's donkey talk, if Hashem can make a donkey talk, he can make a snake talk. Now they do acknowledge that there is one difference between the two. Then the story with Bilam's donkey, the Torah itself tells us that God opened up the mouth of the donkey. In other words, the Torah is telling us that it was a miracle. The Torah has no such pasuk about the snake, but Radak says, listen. Uh, you're right, uh, when it comes to the nigleh, from a more accessible, rational way of reading the psukim, I agree with you, it's mevubal ode it's peculiar that the Torah wouldn't have said it, but he says that you'll have to trust me, there's a sod, there's a nistar, there's a hidden, kabbalistic, mystical reason why the Torah doesn't make that uh, explicit, uh, which I obviously have no idea what the, he, the radak is referring to, but he says that notwithstanding, Without a doubt, this was just a miracle. So what we have is basically the Ebenezer saying, not only did the snake speak, but that was the natural ability of the snake to speak at that point in history. The Radak and the Cheskuni say, yes, the snake spoke, but that was not natural, that was actually miraculous and a one-time miracle. In contrast to all of this is the opinion of the Sforno and the Barbanel. They view this all as one big metaphor. There was no talking snake, and there certainly was no... Um, you know, snake-talking and enticing a Chava. Rather, they suggest that this was a metaphor that the Torah is employing to describe the Satan or the Yitzhahara, the tremendous desire that Chava had to eat the fruit from the Etzadas. After all, in other places in Tanakh, we figuratively refer to a king as a lion. So here we're figuratively referring to the Yitzhahara or the Satan as a snake. Why a snake, of all things? Says so the Sforno, just like a snake, can cause lots of damage and lots of harm, and yet can very easily hide. And you know, in the thickets, you can't always see the snake. It easily can hide. Just so, too, the Yetzirah is always hiding. We can't always, you know, we're not always aware that what the Yetzirah is up to. We're not even always aware of the Yetzirah at all. And yet, the Yetzirah can cause tremendous damage. So the snake is a perfect metaphor, uh, says the Sforno, for the Yetzirah, for the Satan. The Abarbanel also agrees, as I mentioned, with the sforno that this is really just a metaphor. And the Abarbanel actually has a very, very beautiful and very vivid description, interpretation. He says, listen, you have to understand, no snake was speaking, right? There's no way. That's why the Torah never says the snake spoke, uh, that, that Hashem made, open the mouth of the snake, because it actually didn't happen. It's not, it did happen with the donkey, it's not what happened here. Rather, what happened here was, the snake was going up and down the tree eating the fruit, nothing was happening. Chava was looking at all this, and Chava was getting more and more enticed. Says the Abarbanel, the snake spoke, so to speak, through its actions, by wrapping itself around the tree, by eating the fruits, by moving up and down the tree, and nothing happening to uh, the snake. Chava could see how delicious this fruit was, saw there was no negative consequences, and Chava felt as if the snake was talking to her. Inviting her, enticing her to eat from the tree. But that was all in Chava's mind. It was all her Yetzer Hara playing tricks on her. But it wasn't that there was an t- actually talking snake. It was rather a metaphor for the tremendous Yetzer Hara that Chava had to eat the fruit of the tree. The crowning achievement of the creation of the world is, of course, the creation of Adam, the creation of mankind. As we read towards the end of Parak Aleph, Yomare nasa adam bitsalmenu kid let us make man in our image in our likeness yirdu bitgasayam bofa shamay bəhema bəchol harats bəchol harames harames alaretz and then man will rule over all the fish the birds of all the animals all the creepy crawly things man is clearly from the outset designated at the apex of creation What is fascinating, therefore, is despite the fact that this is considered such a clearly positive and superior creation in the straightforward reading of the Chumash text, the Medrash, in a very well-known comment, describes what was happening up in Shemayim when Hashem made this plan, this decision, to create Adam. And according to the Medrash, the angels were getting into a fierce debate whether man was really worthy of being created in the first place, after all, an angel representing the characteristic of MS of truth said, "No way, human beings will be a bunch of liars. You can't possibly create human beings. They're going to completely compromise the virtue of truth of MS." However, says the Medrash, the angel representing the characteristic of Chesed of kindness responded and said that we should create. Uh, mankind. After all, human beings will do acts of chesed, acts of kindness for each other. So, faced with this stalemate, this debate between the angels and the virtues of chesed and ms, the midrash tells us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu as it were, like chesed, and in a demonstrative act, threw chesed down to the earth, as it were. As we see in the Pasuk, in the Navi Daniel, V'tishlach ms Artza, that Truth was thrown down to the earth, so to speak, expelled from the debate, and that just left the opinion, the vote of Chesed, to create human beings, create mankind, and in fact that is what led to the pasuk we just read and the decision to create Adam, Chava, and the rest of humanity. This is an incredible, incredible medrash, and certainly the simple understanding and rating of the medrash is the fact that it seems like we don't really care uh, about the truth. <laughs> Once upon a time, before the creation of mankind, uh, it's acknowledged that hu- in Shemaim, that human beings will lie. And there isn't a response to that defending human beings. Rather, by the Medrash vividly describing Hashem, so to speak, throwing uh, you know MS out of the debate, throwing it out of heaven, as it were, throwing it down to the earth, it sounds like we're basically saying we're going to ignore the arguments made by uh, MS, we're going to ignore the arguments made not to create Adam and mankind, and therefore we're going to create mankind even though he lies. That's certainly the simple reading of the Medrash, but it seems quite hard to fathom, to accept. Is that possible? How could that be? That the Medrash, so to speak, puts into Hashem's voice, as it were, that we don't care about truth, we can just ignore truth, throw it out of the debate and just ignore it so that we can create human beings, even though they can't live up to the values of truth. So Rav Schwab, in his Sefer Mayan Beis HaShoeva, gives a beautiful, beautiful interpretation. He says, in fact, we have to realize that there are two forms, or two types of truth. The first is a heavenly truth, what he calls Ms Hashamaimi, a heavenly truth, which he goes on to explain is the pure and unadulterated truth without any compromise or any accommodation for how that truth will be received here in this world. It doesn't matter if it'll offend, if it'll cause pain, it doesn't matter. The pure and unadulterated truth, MS la'amito, straight, so to speak, from shamayim, from the purest source of truth, via the prophets and communicated to us. That's the heavenly truth. As we say in the bracha for the Haftorah, neviyei MS v'tzedek pure truth, pure justice and righteousness is communicated to us in an unadulterated, unfiltered way through the Nevi'im. It's a heavenly truth coming right from Hashem. However, says Roshawab, there is a second type of truth, what he calls a more earthly truth. And this is very, very different because it takes into account the impact that the truth will have in this world. It takes into account the feelings, the emotion of the person who is being spoken to and being impacted by whatever that truth is. And Rav points out, in the human realm, on our level, there is no absolute obligation to tell the truth. The only obligation is a negative one, not to lie. But anything short of violating that transgression, of actually lying, anything short of that, can in fact be adjusted, can in fact be made more pliable to take into account other legitimate human needs. This, says our Schwab, is the fundamental difference between the two types of truth. Heavenly truth and earthly truth. With this in mind, says Roshawab, now we can understand the medrash about the creation story. When the medrash says that Hashem threw MS down to the ground, as it were, what it means to say is, Hashem was deciding then and there that other than Nevi'im, who will just be a utensil, a medium, a clee to communicate the direct word of God, but other than Prophets, human beings in general are not going to be given this heavenly truth. That is being discarded because we cannot live with that completely perfect truth in our far-from-perfect world. But it doesn't mean that truth is irrelevant to the human story or to creation. Rather, continues our Schwab, we were given something different. We were given a very strong demand and a value of truth, but an earthly truth, a form of truth that is still loyal to the ideal, but flexible enough for human affairs and take into account its impact and the emotions of the people living in this world. The pure heavenly truth was ignored and it was replaced with this innovation called an earthly truth. Or Schwab goes on to explain very beautifully, this is the Gemara Baba Basra that says that after the destruction of the base of Migdash, prophecy was taken away from the prophets and given to the Shotim and the Tinokos, to the imbeciles and the little children. What does that mean, that prophecy was given to Shotim or the little children? He says these are people who typically do not have tact, don't necessarily have the filter, and they sometimes blurt out blunt truths that can make people uncomfortable that regular healthy adults would never have ever said. Yet often what these children or imbeciles will say is in fact a profound truth that we needed to hear. In that sense, it's like the prophecy, but really in general we have the earthly truth, and that was, what was preserved and what enabled creation to go forward. One of the big questions in the entire Torah, and certainly in Parshas Barashas, is how to reconcile the Torah's account of Boratius and the creation of the world with the various scientific theories for the origin of the universe, whether it's the Big Bang Theory, evolution, or things like that. And what is fascinating is that over the generations, there have been various attempts by different uh, great Rabonim to reconcile the science of their day with their understanding of the Psukim, the Medrashim, and other early commentaries. And one of the sources, which is often quoted in those types of discussions, is a comment in the Medrash, actually appears at two different times in our Parsha, in the Medrash rabba, but a comment uh, by the Medrash here on Bratius, which, at least according to some uh, Rabbanim and some thinkers, may hold a key for accommodating, uh, com- uh, somehow synthesizing the scientific theories with the Torah's presentation of the creation story here in the beginning of Prashas. And even though in this brief Devar Torah we won't be able to connect all the dots, I do think it will be helpful and interesting to see the actual words of the Medrash, which are powerful, I think, as well as to understand how those emer- how this comment of the Medrash emerges from a careful reading through the lens of Chazal in the Psukim in our Parsha. So I mentioned that the Medrash appears twice in Parsha Gimel and then later in the Parsha in Parsha And in both cases, the Anchor Posuk seems to be the Posuk at the end of Parak Aleph, the Posuk at the end of the sixth day of creation, after Adam and Chava have been created. The Torah tells us, tov that Hashem saw everything he had created, the Yom Hashishi, and this was the sixth day. And the implied problem, the implied question with this Pasuk, which Chazal are responding to, is that we had already read previously on the other five days of creation that at the end of each day, Hashem said, what I created today was good. And therefore we would have expected that to be repeated on the sixth day. And yet here we have a shift. It's not that the Torah tells us that Hashem saw what He'd done that day and it was good. Rather, Hashem says, I see everything that I created and it's all good. Well, what do you need to tell us that for? You already told us about days one, two, three, four, and 5 that Hashem thought it was good. We don't need to know that Hashem thought it was good now. Hashem already told us it was good. So why does the Torah re- re- you know, repeat its endorsement of the previous five days of creation? Why is the Posag worded in this way? So one answer that is suggested, actually in the name of Rabbi Tanchuma, which is kind of a foil for the main opinion which we'll get to momentarily, Rabbi Tanchuma actually has a different theory. Rabbi Tanchuma says that in fact, The distinction and the need for this is as follows. That previously, each time the Torah says Hashem thought day one, day two was good, it was referring to the content of what was created on that day. However, now at the end of the creation story, Hashem looks back and says, not the content, but the timing of creation was good. Hashem says, I'm happy with the timing of when I created the world. As it says in Koheles, Hashem did everything well in its right time. Hashem got the timing right. Okay, that's Rabbi Tanchuma's opinion. But as I mentioned, the main opinion, which I'd like to focus on, is that of Rabbi Avohu. It appears twice, as I mentioned, in the Medrash and two different Medrashim. And he, each time Rabbi Avohu says as follows, and it's worth hearing Rabbi Avohu's words in its original, l'chein am Rabbi Avohu, how do I reconcile this Pesach, how do I understand it? From here, it says Rabbi Avohu, mikan, shakarish barho Hayabore olamos umachrivan, Bore olamos umachrivan. Hashem had created previous worlds, found them unwanting, unsatisfying. And then he destroyed them. Then he tried again. And again, Hashem did not find the world he created to his liking. Again and again until Ad Shebaru Es Elu, until Hashem created this world, our world. And then Hashem said, This one meets my approval. But the other ones do not meet my approval. That's why I destroyed them. And this is the incredible interpretation and suggestion of Rebbe that our world and the world that is presented to us in the creation story in the beginning of Beratius is not the first world that Hashem created. He had created tens, hundreds, thousands, who knows, millions of worlds before ours, each time Hashem destroyed it because He wasn't happy with it for one reason or another, until He got to our world, which He was fully satisfied with, and that is the world that He approved of. And therefore, the summary postic that we just read here in the end of Parak Aleph, is a reference to the fact that Hashem had not just created this world, but he created it after having tried many worlds, and now finally Hashem is happy with the end result. The, um, the psukim are themselves very fascinating when understood in this lens, and one of the psukim, one of the facets of this parak and a phrase which is adduced by the Medrish as perhaps support for Rabbi Vohu, is the fact that at the end of each day it says, Vayyihi Erev, va Voker, and it does not say, Yihi Erev. Yehi voker, what's the difference? Yehi Erev, or Yihi Voker, would be in the future tense, which would have implied that starting from now, Mikan ul Haba, from now and onward, in the future, whatever was just created will be a good thing. But rather it says, Avayihi, which, according to the Medrash, is in the past tense, implying that there was a seder's manim, that there were things that came before this, and those are all going into the creation of the current, uh, in the, its current form. So perhaps the a past tense of ayihi also alludes to the fact that there were past and previous worlds that had been created. Additionally, in both the versions of the Medrash, both times the Medrash quotes Rabbi Vohu, it also quotes Rabbi Pinchas, who comes to say that the posuk itself is very, very meduyah in numerous ways to confirm Rabbi Vohu's interpretation. After all, when the pasuk says, Vayar kimes kol asher tov so Rabbi Pinchas breaks that down. He says, "Kol when Hashem considered everything, Kol everything He created, past and present, alludes to the previous worlds. The Hinei Tov mode. What is the Hinei? Hinei this one, the current one." As opposed to the past ones, and tov maod—not just very good, but maod better than the previous. So each of these various phrases as Rabbi Pinchas can be understood in full support of Rabbi Yehuda. It's worth noting that in the Medrash haMavur it quotes that there is a machlokas in the Mefarshim haMedrash whether we should take Rabbi Yehuda's teaching literally. There is a minority view that says that this was just what Hashem wanted to do, but he never did. But most Mefarshim in the Medrash do take this opinion quite literally—that bore olamos umachrivan God created other worlds, and only was satisfied when he created ours. A fascinating thing to consider, indeed. The creation of Adam, as is recounted in the creation story on the sixth day of Beratius, is of course famous for many, many reasons and much discussed. One of which is because of the peculiar syntax, the peculiar wording of the Pusuk which we read in Parak Aleph, Pasach (inaudible) Havav, Hashem says, let us make man in our likeness and our image. And of course, we're all drawn, as all the Mepharshim before us were drawn, to the peculiar wording. What is Na'asa Adam? What is Hashem talking about? Who's the plural? Who is Hashem talking to, seemingly partnering with, perhaps even asking for permission or the help to create? Uh, Adam. I mean, this is you know hard to understand, almost uh, inexplicable, and Rahman potentially it sounds almost even heretical. Is there another divine being? Did God need help creating Adam? Did Hashem need permission from someone else to create Adam? What are we talking about? So there are many, many explanations. Perhaps the most famous is the one that Rashi quotes from Chazal, that the Nasa is Hashem actually speaking to the angels. In fact, Hashem consulted with the angels, Rashi recounts, in order to give them proper derech Eretz in order that they shouldn't feel too bad and too threatened by the creation of Adam. Adam being the apex of creation, the closest thing to perfection, certainly the only thing they could possibly give the angels any sense of competition, make them feel any secure about their place in the pecking order, so to speak, of the universe. So Hashem was worried that the angels might be threatened, and therefore Hashem says to the angels, "No, what do you think? He consulted with them. Should we do it or not? Now, obviously, as Rashi points out, it wasn't really a question. Of course, Hashem was going to do it. And Hashem could do whatever he wants. However, we learn Derek Eretz from here, says Hashem, that the boss, even the person who can make the decision all by him or herself, is still a good idea to be nimlach, to consult with, to speak to the people who work for you, who are underneath you, in order to, so to speak, as we would say, get buy-in from them and include them in the process. That's Rashi's a very famous pshat that NASA says in the plural, because Hashem was talking to the angels. However, there's a beautiful explanation uh, quoted in perhaps a not well enough known chassidische sefer, known as the Yismach Moshe. The Yismach Moshe is a sefer uh, written by Rav Moshe Teitelbaum, who uh, lived into the middle of the 19th century. He was a prime student of the Chozah of Lublin, who eventually migrated into Hungary, and is typically credited as being the one who brought Chasidus uh, to Hungary. Uh, many of the famous Hungarian Hasidic dynasties, like Seget and eventually Satner, uh, in fact, are founded and led by descendants of the Yismach Moshe, Moshe Tarabam, the original, the one who brought Hasidus to Hungary. In his very beautiful Sefer, he has a fascinating explanation of this Pasuk, of why it says Naase, Adam, in the plural. And it starts off very beautifully... Uh, by being based on, interestingly enough, a philosophical idea that is uh, developed by the Sefer Ha'ikarim, which was a medieval book of philosophy written by Rav Yosef Albo. And there in the third mamar, Rav Yosef Albo says that there are two types of shleimus, or two types of perfection that a creature or a creation or an object can achieve. The first is what he calls shleimus hamatzias. The idea is that something is completely, totally perfect in the sense of it totally is perfectly ready to fulfill its Desired and designated um, aim and tachlis its purpose from the moment it's created from the moment it's born it's already in a perfect state to fulfill its intended purpose. However, there's a second form of shlemus says Rav shlemus hatachlis where something is created or born with all of the potential to achieve its ultimately designated purpose, but still things need to be done decisions need to be made in order to actualize that potential. And make it into a reality. Rabbi Yosef Alba uses this uh, distinction in order to explain the inconsistency that one finds if you're a sensitive reader in the Perk Aleph of Baratish, That when it comes to the earlier days of creation, with the animals and other parts of creation, each time Hashem says "Ki tov, He saw and it was good. However, it never says that specifically about the creation of Adam. And Yosef Alba explains very beautifully because the animals and other Parts of creation that were created earlier, they were part of the shleimusametzius. From the moment Hashem created them, they were created in a perfect state, already ready to achieve their desired purpose. So, therefore, Hashem could already pronounce kitov. However, when it comes to adam, when it comes to humanity, we are created with all the potential to achieve our purpose. However, whether or not we will do so depends on our own free will, our free choice, our Bechir Chavshis, and therefore Hashem couldn't say kitov because it's not necessarily going to be good, what if the person chooses to live a bad or wicked life, and therefore we have the potential for Shlemus atachlus, says Yosef Albo, but that's going to be up to us, and therefore Hashem couldn't pronounce kitov at the beginning and the onset of Adam's creation. In light of this background, and based on it, says the Yismach Moshe, we can now understand the Pasuk we began with, why does it say, Na'ase Adam? Who is Hashem talking to? Why the plural Lashon? And he explains very beautifully that in fact, it couldn't say, E'ase. Hashem could not say, I will make. Why? Because that implies that it would be all in Hashem's hands to create us in a fully perfect state. However, as we just mentioned, based on our face of Albo, that's in fact not true when it comes to human beings, when it comes to Adam and all of his descendants. We like Adam and Harishon, have Bechir Chavshis, and therefore we will choose how to live our life. If we make good decisions, we can achieve a shleimus HaTachlis, we can achieve our purpose, but if, God forbid, we make bad decisions, then we simply won't. And that is something that is not completely in Hashem's hands. And therefore Hashem couldn't have said E'eseh, rather Na'aseh says the Yismach Moshe, is referring to not Hashem and the angels, but Hashem and Adam, Hashem and each and every one of us. Hashem says Na'aseh, let you and us let you and me, excuse me, partner in your creation. Hashem says to Azram, "Nase, Adam, Adam, you and me will partner into giving you all the potential, so that hopefully you will make the right choices to totally achieve your potential. Therefore, it says, Nas Adam says, the Yisach Moshe, by the two of us joining together as it were, Hashem and Adam, Hashem and every other human being, we have to partner. Hashem creates us with all the potential, He gives us all the everything we need to achieve our purpose, and then it's up to us, in order for us to live a life, making the right decisions, and actualizing that potential to do good things. Hashem invites each and every one of us, to partner with him in our own creation is Shlemus. After creation is completed, we read in the beginning of Parak Bay's the famous Psukim of Hashemayim Hashmaim Arts Vachvaam, Hashem's reflections on the creation, that it's very good, he's completed it, he blesses it, and he sanctifies the Shabbos, which is the culmination of the seven days of creation. These psukim are most well-known to us, of course, because they're part of our Friday night davening in Kiddush. We say it in our silent Shemones way, we repeat it after the Shemon way, as part of the whole Mugin Ovos and the main Sheva, which come after Shemon way at Mariv. And then, of course, when we go home, we say it again as part of our Friday night Kiddush. The Gemara in Masech Shabbos, Adav Yutes, explains why Vayichu is so important and why it's so critical that we say it, in fact, say it multiple times every Shabbos, and The Gemara actually attributes two uh, possible uh, rewards or very glorious compliments about someone who says Vaychulu on Shabbos. The first opinion suggests that if a person does that, you say Vaychulu, you become a shuta from HaKadosh Baruch Hu B'mayas You become a partner I guess a junior partner, but a partner nonetheless with Hashem in the creation of the world. And the second uh, version or opinion that is mentioned is that two angels accompany you home. They place their hands on your head. And in fact, they pronounce based on a pasuk in the Navi Yeshayahu, you're forgiven for all of your sins. Either one of these would be great. A Partner with Hashem in creation, all your sins forgiven. And certainly if they're both true, wow, that would be certainly incredible. So that is you know, explains why it's so important that we say Vayichulu. That doesn't necessarily explain why we have to repeat Vayichulu right after Shmon Esrei. I mean, if we just said Vayichulu in our silent Shmon Esrei. and it makes sense that we would pick these psukim to reflect the Kedusha's Hayom of Shabbos and incorporate that into our special Friday night Shmon Esrei. I think that makes sense. But why right after Shmon Esrei, would we repeat it again? It seems very, very peculiar. So the Torah and the Shochrach bring two main reasons for this. The first reason is because we know that there are any number of, times in the course of a year where Shabbos will fall out on Yontif, and on those Friday nights you say a Yontif Shmon Esrei. you don't say a Shabbos Shmon Esrei, and therefore you won't not have said Vayechulu, and therefore you need to say Vahulu after Shmon because you didn't say it in Shmon Esrei. Now You would be obviously thinking and asking, okay, well that's true for the one, two, three, four, who knows how many times a year where Shabbos fell out on Yontif. But why do we say it after Shmon Esrei? Why do we add that second time in davening for all the other Shabbos when there's not Yom at all I just said it a few minutes ago and the answer is we like synchronicity we like consistency we want that there should be the same Friday night davening this minute evolved because we want to say it every Friday night but in all truth says the Shulchan Tour, we say it all Friday nights just for, according to this opinion, the few Friday nights that fell out on Yontef when it was necessary because of the Shemon Esrei change. And the second opinion brought by on the Shochan Aruch is that the reason we're saying it on a Friday night, again, right after Shemon Esrei, is Lahotsi Misha The For those people who were not, uh, able to, didn't know, either know to, didn't know how to read, or there were no sidurim, so they didn't know Shmon Esrei by heart, and therefore they didn't say Vaychlu in their Shmon Esrei. And therefore, right after Shmon Esrei, we say it all out loud together, so either the person gets to say it along with us, or they can listen to yote that way, but we're doing it just for those rare people who Nebuch don't know how to do it on their own. Interestingly, in addition to those two reasons, the tour introduces a third uh, idea or dimension, which has taken on a life of its own and become very interesting halachically and even very controversial. And that is that the tour says obviously inspired by the Gemara that we saw, but going further than the Gemara, says the Torah, when we say Vayichlu, we are engaging in a formal, or at least a semi-quasi-formal form of edus. It is a form of testimony. We are testifying that Hashem created the world. And therefore, says the Torah, this is not mere hyperbole, it'll have actual nafkabina, says the Torah, that's why we stand, those witnesses stand when they're giving testimony. That's why we say it out loud because, of course, the Bezdin, so to speak, needs to hear the testimony. And this idea of the tour is actually brought down in Paskind, both in the Taz and the Mishnabrura. The Taz goes so far as to say that really, since this is not Stam Edus, but Edus about Hashem and creating the world, really, you should ideally say it with at least 10 people, you should have at least an Ada or a minion. But, says the Taz, if you don't have ten, at least say it with two, at least say it with two. And Mission Brewer brings this down as well. Of course, this begs the question, what if you don't have even two people? Either you're doubting by yourself, or you said a very slow shmon esrei, and therefore the tzibur has already finished Vayichulu, what should you do then? Can you even say it? And the truth is, if you look in the Taz, he's not happy with it. He doesn't really think you should say it, because after all, it's testimony, and testimony needs at least two people. However, says the Taz, begrudgingly, okay, if you're by yourself, you could say it, but you should have kavana, that I'm not saying this as testimony, as edus, I'm just reading uh, psukim. And again, the Bura quotes that as well. The Mishnabruah in his Bir Halacha quotes in the Gadim perhaps the most extreme uh, nafkemina, or ramification of this approach and this idea, and that is the Gadim says you should actually hurry up your Shmon Esrei, your silent Shmon Esrei, even if it costs you in your personal kavana, so that you actually don't run into that problem. If you're in shul anyway, and there's a tibur that you know momentarily is going to be saying Hulu out loud, it's so important to say Hulu as a group because of the testimony, says the gadim, finish your rest Rastori, hurry up, so you can say it together with them. Wow, very, very interesting. Uh, also worth noting that there are numerous other discussions in the poskim which seem to be very relevant and perhaps connected to this approach. A debate whether women uh, are obligated, minors under bar mitzvah, ketanim, some poskim have this very intriguing idea, that you're supposed to have you should do tshuva you should repent before you say vayachulu and all these are most likely understood if you take this very extreme and literal approach that it's a form of testimony therefore the rules of testimony will be relevant to vayachulu and of course the most well known uh, so to speak nafkamina of this idea which many of us have seen maybe some some of us even have done in shul is if for whatever reason we did have a a shorter monastery, you often will see people in shul on Friday night going over uh, to someone and saying will you say va'yahulu with me and you'll see two people kind of saying Hulu uh, together, and all of that, that kind of chumrah, that you don't say it by yourself, you look for a second person to say it with you, all of that is based on this idea of the tour as posked by the Taz and endorsed by the Brua. However, it is important to note that the Chazonish rejects this completely. The Chazonish thinks this is basically a new idea, you don't really find it before the tour, and he doesn't think it's therefore uh, legitimate enough, he doesn't have any True primary sources, and he says that uh, if you look in the earlier posting before the tour, there's no mention of Dafka saying it by standing or Dafka saying it out loud, and there anyway are other explanations for that. But he says there's nothing to do with Adis; he doesn't buy that at all. And he's very upset at the idea that you would hurry up your Shmon Esrei and compromise your personal Kavana. He says, Kavana is much more important than this new idea, of made-up idea uh, of testimony. You certainly should not do that. And there's no need for Davka two people. One person can say it by themselves. Um, and it's worth noting, this is a very interesting and important between the Chazanish and Mish-